Good morning. On August 4th, 1949, there was a lightning strike in a place called Man Gulch, which was up in the mountains of Montana. A lightning strike began a forest fire. The forest ranger spotted the fire, called it in, and pretty soon a team of smoke jumpers were dispatched to fight the fire. The smoke jumpers were the elite unit of the U.S. Forest Service when it came to fighting fires. They were young and tough and fearless and well-trained. And they were the ones that oftentimes would go in and fly into remote places and parachute in so that they could fight these fires. And they were really good. They often talked about 10 o'clock fires meaning that they would come in the night before, you know, when the, when the, or the afternoon before when the fire had started. And by 10 o'clock the next morning, they'd have it under control before the reinforcements came from the ground to help fight the fire. And so they were a proud group, and they were very good at what they did. And this particular crew of uh, smoke Jumpers was led by a man, a foreman by the name of R. Wagner Dodge, known by short as Wag Dodge. Dodge was a very experienced firefighter. He was really one of the best uh, of the smoke jumpers. He'd been with the crew for about eight years. He knew what he was doing. He was also somebody who was really known for being good with his hands, mechanical sort of person that just knew what to do when difficult situations came into play. And in fact, that very spring when the smoke jumpers had been going through their training, Dodge had been excused from that so he could get all the equipment ready, which turns out to be a key element of the story. Well, anyway, the fire is burning in Man Gulch, and the smoke jumpers parachute in. And as they parachute in, and the crew is gathering all their equipment, which also came down by parachutes, and they're trying to put everything together. Dodge goes to assess the fire to try to figure out what's going on here and how bad of a fire is. And as he takes a look at it, he thinks to himself, this isn't too bad. I've seen worse fires than this. I think this might even be one of those 10 o'clock fires that we could you know, have under control by the next morning. And so as he looks at the fire, he develops a strategy. They're up above the Missouri River, and the fire is, is burning downhill on the southern slope of Man Gulch. And he says to himself and to his crew, let's go down the northern slope of Man Gulch, where the fire is not burning, so we'll actually be kind of walking down parallel to the fire. But our job is to get in front of the fire so that we can begin uh, fighting it from down below. And then if something happens, we can retreat down to the Missouri River because we know the fire can't follow us there. So a little bit about firefighting and forest fires. Forest fires tend to burn low to the ground. Most forest fires are very slow moving. They might go a half mile to a mile an hour or something like that. And they burn off the, off the fuel that is at the floor of the forest, you know, pine needles and dead leaves and branches and roots and that sort of thing. And so the way in which fires in forests are often fought is that, is that firefighters get ahead of the fire and they dig trenches. 
And in those trenches, they remove anything that could be fuel for the fire. And that way, when the fire gets to that trench, it can't go any further because there's nothing for it to burn. And so, essentially, the way a lot of forest fires are fought is not by huge amounts of water, because you can't get to huge amounts of water out in the middle of nowhere, but they build these big trenches, dig these big trenches all around the fire, and they contain it that way. So that's what these firefighters were intending to do. They were going to go down, they were going to get in front of the fire, they were going to go down the northern slope, they were going to get in front of the fire and start building their trenches. It was a good plan until the first of two disasters happened. The first disaster happened was that the fire crowned. Now, what that means is that, you know, I was saying earlier that oftentimes fires, forest fires burn low to the ground. But if they get up into the branches, they can move rather quickly. Because there's lots of fuel up in, the, up in the trees, right? It goes from tree to tree to tree because they're all close to one another. And that's what happened with this fire. It suddenly crowned, and as it crowned, it crossed the gulch from the south side to the north side. And suddenly, Wag Dodge and his men found that they were walking into the fire. Well, he knew that that was not going to work, and immediately he told his men to turn around and head back up toward the ridge, because if you get up toward the ridge, there wasn't very much fuel for the fire, and that's, the fire would likely taper out by the time you got to the top of the ridge. And so he told his men to start heading up toward the top of the ridge, and that's when the second disaster happened. The second disaster was that the fire blew up. Now, I told you earlier that fires tend to move rather slowly, even when they've crowned. But given the right conditions, they can move very quickly. And the right conditions are the right kind of fuel, which oftentimes means that if there are high grasses that are, that are there, that are especially dry, and that there's a right amount of wind pushing, it behind, pushing behind the fire, the fire can go very quickly. And that's what happened. On the north side of Mang Gulch, it was primarily grasses, and the, fire, and the wind kicked up, and all of a sudden, they discovered that this fire was chasing the men up the hill. And Dodge cried to his men to drop everything they had and to run for their lives up to the top of the hill, because hopefully they could get to the ridge so that they would not perish. Well, by this time, Dodge was at the front of his crew again. And as he emerges from the smoke, because they can't really see where they're going because there's smoke everywhere, but as they get high enough so that they emerge from the smoke, he sees that the, that the ridge is about 200 yards ahead. But as he looks behind him, he sees that the fire is about 50 yards behind them and closing quickly. And he knows they're not going to make it. And then he did something that was completely strange. Wag Dodge reached into his pocket, pulled out a book of matches, and started a fire around him. 
It was one of those intuitive sort of things. He didn't really even know why he did it. He just said, you know, later he said it just seemed logical at the time, but he didn't have all the reasons for why he started this fire. But he started this fire, and it started burning the fuel around him. He said, I figured that maybe if I, if I started a fire, that when the fire got to the second fire that I had started, it wouldn't have any fuel, and it wouldn't be able to burn anymore. And then his men started coming by. And as they came by, he shouted to each one of them, step into the fire with me. You can't make it. You're not going to be able to make it to the ridge. The only way you're going to make it is to step into this fire with me. And they looked at him like he was crazy. I mean, who fights a fire by starting a fire? And they kept him on running up toward the ridge hoping that they could outrun the fire that Dodge knew they would not be able to outrun. And when all his men had passed by and the fire was nipping at his heels, Wag Dodge put a handkerchief over his mouth. He laid down in the ashes of the fire he had just created and he started to pray. He later estimated it was about five minutes. I'm sure it must have felt like five hours. But he was right. The, the, the fire came, and when it came to the spot that he had burned out, it went around him because there was no fuel for it to feed off of. And after five minutes, Dodge got up from the fire and surveyed the landscape and discovered that 13 of his men were dead. He was right. They had not been able to make it to the top of the hill. Only two had escaped. Two of the youngest and fastest had found a way to get to the ridge and squeeze through a crevice, and they survived. But everybody else died. Why? Why hadn't they been willing to step into the fire with Dodge? Well, I expect there's a couple of reasons. One is... They'd never seen anybody do this before. I mean, Wag Dodge, as far as the U.S. Forest Service is concerned, invented what later became known as the escape fire at that moment. In his moment of desperation, when he set that fire, it was something that nobody really had ever done before. And so as his men came by, they thought, this makes no sense. We're running for our lives, and you're sitting around here playing with matches? What's the deal, man? And they kept running up toward the top of the hill. But there was a second reason. You remember I told you that during that spring when they had been training, and Dodge had been off getting the equipment ready, and they had all been training together? They didn't know each other. Oh, they knew Dodge by reputation. He was one of the best firefighters amongst the smoke jumpers. He had lots of experience, but they didn't really know him. And they didn't know him enough to trust him. So that when they came to that moment of trying to decide whether they were going to follow their own instincts and keep running up to the top of the ridge, or they were going to trust this guy who they barely knew, guess which one they chose? They did what most of us would have done. They kept running because they rather they trusted their own instincts rather than his. We've been talking about discipleship this year. Patrick and Jordan have led us on a good 
journey about what it means to be a disciple. And we're reminded by these by these images up here, right? Disciples follow people into the water and they connect and they engage and they share their faith and they're transformed. These are all excellent markers of what it means to be a disciple. And it's really, you know, generated some thinking, hopefully on all of our parts, certainly on my part, about what does it mean to be a disciple. And I think at the end of the day, what it means to be a disciple is to be a follower. That's kind of a tough thing for a lot of us, particularly as independent Americans who like to focus on individual things rather than a communal kind of, kind of lifestyle that uh, happens in other parts of the world sometimes. But it, it means that we, we are trying to become followers of Jesus in everything we do. So that we ask ourselves in a given situation, what would Jesus do? Remember those bracelets, you know? They're pretty good. What would Jesus do in a given situation? Or what would Jesus think about this? How would he process this? And, and so that I begin to try to think like Jesus does so that I might respond like he does. So that I might emulate Jesus in everything we do. Okay? That's what being a disciple is about. And it's challenging. I think it's not easy to be a disciple of Jesus. Because... Many of the things he calls us to do don't make sense. Let me start with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Which one of us really desires to be poor? Which one of us really desires to mourn. And then, he, and then later on, in that same chapter, I think he, he gets even a little crazier. He says, you know, if some Roman soldier comes along and compels you to go a mile with them carrying their equipment, go with them too. I mean, this was something that Roman soldiers could do by law. They could pick out a citizen and they could say, hey, I'm tired. I want you to carry my stuff for a mile. And you would have to do it. You would have to stop what you were doing and carry their stuff for a mile. And this made people really irritated and annoyed. Because why should I stop what I'm doing to carry this, this Roman soldier who is, 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 is our conqueror, why should I carry their stuff for a mile? And Jesus says, if somebody comes and asks you to carry their stuff for one mile, you carry their stuff for two miles. He says, if somebody takes you to court and sues you for your coat, give them your tunic as well. He says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek as well. I mean, this stuff is crazy, right? This doesn't make any sense. It's all counterintuitive. It really does not fit with the way, with our human nature and the way in which we process things. So why in the world would I do these sorts of things that Jesus is calling me to do? Because it's not just these examples that I've given this morning. If you take a look at the whole core of what Jesus teaches about, almost all of it has to do with things that are directly opposite of our human nature. They are things that we would not choose to do left to our own devices. So why then would we do them? What motivation would compel us to do what Jesus is calling us to do? It's because he says, trust me. Ever had anybody do that to you? You know, 
you're wondering why in the world I should do what you're telling me to do, and they say to you, just trust me. It's not easy, right? To just trust somebody. I've been thinking this week, I don't think I'll forget this for a long time, about Dr. Pointer's example last week of a holding pattern. Anybody remember that? You know? Yeah, Pam's got it over here. You know, he says, you know, sometimes God puts us in a how did he do that? <laughs> holding pattern, right? And that we have an idea about how we want to see how things are going to go. And God has the larger view. He has a larger picture. And so he puts us into a holding pattern. And he makes us wait. Right? Because he knows what's best for us. And that's really what Jesus is saying. He says, you know, I want you to do these things I'm calling you to do. And I want you to trust me on them. Because I guarantee you, if you do it, your life will be better because of it. And, and, you know, most of the time, I can live with that. In fact, I can even begin to embrace it. You know, I, I, I can be courteous to somebody who treats me poorly. Because Jesus calls on me to do that. I can be willing to sacrifice some of my own desires and needs because my own rights, so to speak, because it might work to the betterment of somebody else. I can do that. But what about when the stakes are high? What about when the risks are great? What about when it's a matter of great consequence to us? What about when Jesus calls on us to step into the fire? What do you do with that? And it's at those times that I want to do just what those guys did running up the hill. I want to trust my judgment rather than his judgment. Because the cost is very high and the risks are very great. And what I would say about discipleship, and I'm not suggesting we add a sixth thing here, five or plenty... But maybe discipleship also means stepping into the fire. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a story that probably most of us are familiar with. It's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar and three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar was a rather vain man, I think. He was king, he was king of Babylon, he had a wide-ranging empire, and he decided that he wanted to flex his muscles, I guess. And so he built an image, 90 feet high in the air, 9 feet wide, stuck it in the middle of a plane so you could see it from all around, and then he ordered all of his leaders, the satraps and the governors and the whatever they were, okay, to come so that they could see this great monument that he had uh, erected, and especially that they could worship it. And so they came to worship this great idol that he had erected in the desert. And he said, when you hear the sound of all the music, the harps and the zithers and all the other kinds of music that are in there, he said, um, 
then you need to bow down to this, to this image. And just as a little extra incentive, if you don't, I will throw you into a fiery furnace. So naturally, when the sound of all the music came up, everybody bowed down because even if they didn't believe in what Nebuchadnezzar was saying, they didn't want to be cast into a fiery furnace, right? Everybody except these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Jews who were in captivity, and they believed it was not right to bow down to this image. That, in fact, it would be an affront to their God. And so they didn't bow down. And when that happened, the other guys, their colleagues, the other satraps and governors and whatever they were, decided that this was a good time to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were fast-rising stars in the kingdom, and this was a way to cut them, cut them out and take them out. And so they went to Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, you know, weren't we supposed to all bow down when the music came? Well, these three guys didn't bow down, and, Sha and, and Nebuchadnezzar was angry. And he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into his presence, and he said, is this true? They said, Yes. And he said, I'm going to give you one more chance. We're going to play this music again, and when we do, you better bow down, or I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And their response to him was classic. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us. From your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. <laughs> I said to Nebuchadnezzar, You're our king, but we serve our God. And if those two are two things are in conflict, then we're going to choose serving God over serving you. Because we believe that no matter what happens, our God is powerful enough to rescue us. And even if he doesn't, we are still going to worship our God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was furious, and it says his attitude changed toward them. And so he had some people, some of his strongest soldiers, tie them up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said to the person that was, that was running the furnace, crank that baby up as high as it'll go. And he had these soldiers deliver these, these three men to the furnace, and it was so hot that the soldiers who, who delivered them there died of heat stroke. And Nebuchadnezzar is watching what's going on in the furnace, and all of a sudden he springs to his feet and he says, wait a minute, I thought there were three guys that we threw in there. How come there's four of them that are walking around and one of them looks like the son of a god? And so Nebuchadnezzar moves toward the furnace. I suspect he didn't get too close. He moves toward the furnace and he shouts out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, sons of the most high God, come out of there. And they come out and not a hair of their head is singed and their, and their clothes are not scorched and they don't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar gets it. 
He understands what is happening. And in verse 25, he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. He understood that the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego was more powerful than any God that he could create. What's the lesson? The lesson is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted in God, and God delivered. What's your fire? What's the fire that you need to step into? Jesus stepped into the fire. Remember that story about him being in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the night before he's to be crucified and he cries out to God, isn't there another way we could do this? Is, can't I be spared? Can't I be... Find another way so that I don't have to go to the cross. But if this is what you think needs to happen, then I will do it. Paul stepped into the fire. He was on the way to Damascus. He was known all over the region as somebody for, who persecuted Christians because he thought they were leading, them, leading Jews into apostasy. And lo and behold, on his way to Damascus, he gets struck down by a bright light and blinded. And he, and he goes into, uh, I forget which city, Damascus or whatever city it was that he goes in. And three days later, a disciple of Jesus comes to, say, comes to visit him and says, I have an opportunity for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> the very ones that he was persecuting. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him? I mean, his whole reputation was built on being somebody who persecuted Christians, and now he was being invited to become one. And he stepped into the fire. And he became a follower of Jesus. And his life and our lives are changed because of it. Margaret Linquist stepped into the fire this week when her husband went in for surgery and she didn't know what was going to happen. But what she saw was that God delivered and that God has provided a good outcome for that surgery. Jenny Halterman stepped in a few weeks ago She stepped into the fire when Mike passed, unexpectedly. And we were all asking, why? How can something like this happen? What's the purpose of that happening? But I'm sure none of us has asked that more often than Jenny has. And she stepped into the fire and is trusting God to deliver her. So what's your fire? Is it some relationship that needs to be repaired in your life? Is that your fire? Is it some kind of work situation that needs to be changed? Is it some activity that's going on in your life that you know you need to stop doing, but it's hard to do? What's the fire that you need to step into? And will you trust Jesus enough 
to step into the fire. Because if you do, he'll deliver. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, our faith, our faith is weak. It's hard to trust you sometimes. It's hard to trust you a lot of times because we want to, we want to do the things that we want to do because we think they're the right things to do and we trust our own judgment. Father, help us to trust yours. Help us to be disciples of Jesus who are ready to step into the fire. Help us to know that whatever happens when we step into the fire, that you, in one way or another, will deliver us because you are a God and you are strong and you love us. Thank you so much for being our God and for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We're dismissed. <laughs>